I believe that we owe it to one another uh, to tap into empathy and respect and try to connect uh, because I don't think we can afford to hate the people on the other side, whatever the other side is for you. I don't think we can afford to hate them anymore. And I don't think we can afford to let them hate us either. So empathy and respect. And if you think about it, I think it's the very least that we owe our fellow citizens. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for How to Have Better Political Conversations, or our alternative title, Ending This Zombie Apocalypse. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our special guest tonight is Dr. Rob Willer, professor of psychology and sociology at Stanford University and director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab. Rob has been working on understanding the moral underpinnings of the accelerating anger we see all around us. And good news, this episode is packed with scientifically grounded advice for how we can improve the quality of our political conversations. Our facilitator for this program is Kristen Hansen, Executive Director of Civic Health Project, and one of our favorite civic superheroes. Civic Health Project focuses on reducing toxic polarization, fostering social cohesion, and promoting bridge building and civil discourse in the U.S. Kristen also teaches year-round at her alma mater, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She is truly a civic hero. She saw what was happening to us as our divisions grew deeper and deeper, and she changed her whole life around to do her part. So now it's time to turn it over to Kristen Hansen, who will give you a proper introduction to Dr. Rob Willer. So tonight, I am delighted to make an introduction as well. I'm going to be introducing my friend and colleague, Dr. Rob Willer. Hi, Rob. Hey, how's it going, Kristen? Great to see you. Great to see uh, you. Rob, <laughs> so Rob is a professor of sociology and director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab, as well as co-director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. Prior to Stanford, Rob earned his PhD from Cornell University. His current teaching and research focus on the social forces that either bring people together or divide them further, and more broadly on the social and psychological forces that shape Americans' political attitudes. And we're going to hear a lot more about this tonight. But I, I just want to mention that Rob's research and his recent engaging TED Talk, which has been viewed, believe it or not now, nearly three million times, place him in high demand. So you, you're getting a great show tonight, folks. <laughs> Puts him in high demand with audiences around the globe. Uh, but it is true. I know that his two little kids, not teenagers yet, but very little kids, like it best when he's at home. Right, Rob? It's true. Yeah. No, I'm lucky to have a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Wow. So yeah. 
I think tonight we've struck a perfect balance because we can all be here with you. And then a little bit later, you can go tuck those kids into bed. So you'll be kicking us off today, Rob, with some insights about how we can all have better political conversations and stave off the zombie apocalypse. I'm going to jump back in when you're done to take us all through some Q&A from me and from the audience. But first, Rob, get us started. Over to you. Great. Thanks a lot, Kristen. Really appreciate that generous introduction. I'll, I'll struggle to live up to it. And on the three-year-old and the six-year-old, uh, Addie and Jojo will be, we'll just be lucky if they, uh, they don't uh, come in halfway through this presentation. Wanted to say uh, at the top, this is a, a real pleasure and an honor to be speaking with all of you today. Uh, I've been a, a fan of Village Square uh, in particular and, and Liz Joyner specifically for quite some time. Uh, and, you know, Village Square was uh, an organization that was an early mover and a leader in this exact space and continues to be a uh, major leader in this bridging community of folks that are trying to, you know, heal American political, uh, cultural, and, and other divisions. And I just, you know, salute their work. And thanks as well to, to Kristen and Civic Health Project. Civic Health Project's made a lot of the research in my uh, lab, the Polarization and Social Change Lab, possible, uh, including some of the research that I'll talk about tonight. So uh, kudos to them and, and thanks for everything that they do. So what I want to talk to you all about today is how we can have better political conversations uh, when we're trying to speak across political divides. And I'm going to lead with this sort of main takeaways that I want you to, to get from, from this short talk that I'm going to give at the top uh, before we open it up for Q&A here, with, uh, which will be led by Kristen. And the main takeaways are the following. I probably don't have to tell you that political conversations can be very, very difficult, uh, especially in the contemporary United States. In addition, there are thankfully several evidence-based techniques that can be used to, to make these conversations better, more effective, and even occasionally uh, places where persuasion can happen. And there are three techniques that I'm gonna take from the social and behavioral science literature. They include active listening, story sharing or perspective sharing, and moral reframing. And so my goal here is that coming out of this talk, you'll have these three tools and some sense of you know, what I mean by them and what, what's been studied with them. Uh, and then you'll be able to deploy them yourself in future conversations that you have. And I'm gonna probably go into most detail on moral reframing because it's the one I've studied the most myself, uh, but I'm gonna hopefully give you enough on each of these to have, have a good understanding of each one. So before we do that, I do wanna set the stage of where we're at with polarization in this country. And I often am asked as a, you know, a social scientist who studies American politics, is it really as bad as it seems? And sadly, it is quite bad. You know, like the more data you consume on polarization, the more concerned you get about polarization in this country. People wonder, you know, are people disagreeing more in this country than they used to? It seems like it. I would say that they are, uh, especially the more politically knowledgeable Americans are further apart on issues than they, they were in the past. And then our elected representatives, for a number of reasons, disagree more uh, than they have uh, in, you know, a century at least. It's also the case that our issue disagreements are lining up more and more with our party identities than they ever did before. So if you're young enough, you probably don't know, but there used to be such a thing as a, a liberal Republican or at least a moderate Republican. There used to be such a thing as a conservative or at least a moderate Democrat. There's very few 
uh, moderate Republican and Republicans and Democrats that we're electing these days, and then uh, just really no crossover in terms of the ideology of our elected representatives in the two parties, and uh, the you know the vanishing of uh, the middle amongst our elected representatives has meant that these two parties really serve as distinct social identities with distinct political and moral worldviews. People sign up for a team; the team looks really different from the other team, and that breeds further animosity. And so that uh, alignment of ideology and issue positions with party is thought to be a major reason why polarization has become uh, so toxic in so many ways in the contemporary US. This is even felt at the level of our, of our brain's activation patterns. So in research that was conducted by my lab in collaboration with Jamil Zaki's social neuroscience lab here at Stanford, we found that liberals and conservatives actually exhibit different activation patterns when in their, in their brains, when we're using fMRI to, to image their brains, actually show different activation patterns when, when viewing the exact same political content. So if you had this sense that, uh, that it seems like liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans are, are drawing different conclusions, even when they see the exact same information, this would be some uh, confirmation and explanation for why that would be the case. It's also the case that Americans are increasingly sorting into different parts of the country, uh, you know, the coasts versus the middle of the country and the southern parts of the country, uh, urban versus rural settings based on their political ideology and their party identity. And this is a phenomenon that's been called the big sort. What's been talked about a little bit less is that Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives are also sorting into different professions. The result is that the social network that you have in your everyday interactions that comes from where you live, what you do for a living, that used to be a source of cross-cutting connections. You would meet someone of a different party identity from yourself or a different political ideology. And it would lead you to update your sense of what they are like with a real person that you know you maybe like. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a, a you know a close family member. And we're getting fewer and fewer of those kind of cross-cutting ties that humanize our perception of the other side and also maybe make our perception of the other side more accurate because partisan stereotypes have gotten very, very inaccurate in the United States. And then finally, one of the pieces of data that really disturbs me is the levels of support for political violence that we see uh, among Americans now. Now, I don't want to overstate this. They're not really high on these scales. You know, it's still unusual to support the use of political violence. It scores at something like 10 on a 100 point scale. But for someone like me, I would like to see those numbers down at zero. I think the average level of support for political violence, we shouldn't stop until we get that down to nothing. Uh, so the levels we do see are still concerning. This is a graph that maybe summarizes the trend about as well as any that I could show you. So this is a graph of the reported feelings of warmth versus coldness of American partisans over the last half century or so. And we've just put Democrats and Republicans together here uh, on these lines because their data look basically the same. And so this is Democrats and Republicans, when they report how warmly they feel towards people from their own party, it's been pretty consistently pretty warm for you know going on a half century. But when we look at the way that they report the warmth they feel towards their rival partisans in the other party, you see this decreasing warmth, this increasing coldness over time. And then this is the, the difference between the two lines, which we call a measure of affective polarization or like emotional polarization. So this isn't about issues, this is about feelings. And that those feelings have gotten colder and colder towards our rivals over the last 40 to 50 years. One thing that is not often highlighted here, but the green line 
isn't even going up. So it isn't even the case that with this decreasing warmth we feel towards our rivals that we're getting some, you know, greater feeling of loyalty and, and in-group harmony and positive feelings from our own group. We're not even getting that. So it's just mostly a pretty, pretty much a bad deal. This is entering our everyday lives, of course, right? This isn't just happening in the abstract. This isn't just happening on Fox News and MSNBC. This is happening in our day-to-day -day interactions. Some examples of that include the way that we think about our children. So American partisans now, uh, something like half of them report that they would be disappointed if their child married a supporter of the rival party, a number that I expect will, you know, will continue to go up and actually is similar to the levels of American uh, Americans' opposition to interracial marriage in the late 1960s. In addition, partisanship and political ideology are leading preferences that people report in their dating lives. This you know, consistently shown that one of the best predictors of uh, characteristics people wanna match on when they're dating is political ideology. This is also felt in the workplace. Research shows that people report that they don't wanna hire and would be willing to not hire an equally qualified or even more qualified supporter of the rival party, which would be an illegal form of workplace discrimination, but one that's reported at surprisingly high levels by American partisans. And then finally, it's you know felt at the level of our family, our family gatherings. According to one study, uh, one study reported that Thanksgiving dinners are getting shorter and shorter in the United States, an effect that we assume is driven by these more diverse uh, families that are sort of fleeing the Thanksgiving dinner table quicker than they used to to get away from conversations uh, that they find unpleasant. So this is the setting. This is where we're at. We got to figure out something to do about this. And the biggest thing that I think the average person in America would like to be able to do about it is navigate their interactions with people that they disagree with politically more effectively, to somehow have some tools to uh, have more cohesive, effective conversations with people that are positive emotionally and potentially effective in terms of convincing somebody of something now and again, and perhaps being open to being convinced oneself and changing one's own mind as a result of, of having political conversations with other people. And we've been doing research on this in our lab for about 12 years now. And, and we also read up very extensively on the research from other labs like ours, trying to find as many and as high quality of tools as we can and so these three tools that I'm gonna share with you are, are three that really stick out to me from the literature as ones that can be practically applied in our everyday lives. So the first, as I mentioned, is active listening. And this basically involves listening in a non-judgmental, constructive way. Uh, some examples of this, I'm gonna get really micro here, just really specific in order to you know, really facilitate you, you know, knowing what this research is about. Uh, smiling, nodding your head in interaction, thanking the person for sharing their perspective, even if it's a perspective that you disagree with, trying to find common ground for agreement. Now, this seems difficult, right? Especially if your default interaction uh, or your default approach to an inter-party interaction is to kind of think about what your argument is going to be, what's the thing you're going to say next, and not really hear what the person's saying. But if you can orient yourself a little bit differently, you can think about what you're going to say, but Think about what they're saying too, and try to find in what they're saying some kind of common ground that you could identify. And it could be something simple you wouldn't even think to identify. Like, uh, I can see that we both care a lot about Americans getting good health care. You know, or I can see we both care a lot about the safety and security of our families. You know, 
saying something like that about a gun control debate or a conversation about gun control might be an effective way to establish at least some common ground. Uh, and holding back before giving your opinion, like truly attending to what the other person is saying, trying to cool down that like alarm that goes off as you start to realize that this person disagrees with you on this thing. And then of course, in the contemporary US, we often think, oh, then they must disagree about this thing. And then they must disagree about this thing. And then they must have voted for that terrible person. And you go to all these places really quickly. But if you can instead sort of sit with it and say, no, I'm gonna like listen to this person's perspective. I'm gonna try to appreciate it. I'm gonna try to thank them at least just for sharing it with me. And I'm gonna try to establish some common ground. And why? Well, because you could convey respect to that person. You could build some empathy, both for, you know, both your empathy for them of appreciating their perspective and also their empathy for you, for which they'll be likely to reciprocate if they see you listening and attending to what they're saying. And then finally, you know, you can generate some positive feelings, which depending on what your motives in the interaction are, that might be super important. That, that might be your biggest motivation in the interaction. If it's like a family interaction or somebody in your workplace or your neighborhood, you might say, you know what, the biggest thing is I need to have a positive relationship with this person while not completely selling out my own views. So I need to figure out a way to talk to this person while being myself, but have it go well. And I think that can start with listening to what they're saying. For me, it's also helpful because I can kind of hang back. I get some information where this person's coming from, sets me up better to maybe make a persuasive appeal, maybe offer my own perspective in a way that's more productive. Uh, or what have you, but I, I kind of need to know where they're coming from first, if I'm going to know how to step forward next. Um, so it doesn't mean you don't think about what you're saying, what you're going to say. It means you do so in a more considered way that's tailored to the actual person you're you're engaging with. So that brings us to perspective sharing or story share. So that I kind of put these two things together because they've been studied part and parcel together. So this involves giving your perspective uh, ideally through a personal story. And it's a very different way of explaining your political position on something rather than just saying like, I really think this, and then starting to sound like a talking head on Fox News or MSNBC. Instead saying, you know, I really feel this based on my own personal experience and then explaining what that is. So for example, there may be some personal experience that led you to have the views that you do. Maybe you grew up in a certain part of the country where it was very normal to support gun rights and everybody around you did. And that made sense given the number of people that had guns, the number of people that hunted. That position simply made sense in that environment. And you understand that it doesn't make sense to other people, but that that's where you're coming from with your position on this issue is you, you know, growing up, you barely even were exposed to somebody who disagreed with this position. It was entirely natural. And now you've rendered your perspective in a human way where the other person's like, oh, okay, all right. I have some sense of why this person has this view. I have some sense of who they are, that they're like a real person, not just like an avatar of a political position or a talking head on cable news. They're like a person that had some way they got to that, that issue position. Or maybe for example, you have a position on, on government-provided healthcare. Like for me, my position on government-provided healthcare is informed by my experience with one of my brothers who really needs that healthcare. And he also needs it to be more accessible in order to really get it. And that informs the way I think. When I'm thinking about healthcare, my, the reason my blood pressure goes up is because I'm thinking about him, you know? 
And if I explain that to somebody, they'll say, oh, okay, that's like a human experience. I also have a sibling with health troubles. And then so I can relate to, the, and, and maybe financial problems as well, who needs uh, support. And we also worry about them. Uh, I don't go to the same place as Rob does about, you know, the policy positions that he supports. I go to a different place based on that similar experience, but we're at least connected, right? Like we're now we're talking about the problems that everyday folks can have with managing healthcare bills. Now we're having a conversation where we're connected. So the idea of perspective sharing is that you're going to build empathy and understanding and respect. You also can find that it's a persuasive approach as well. So it's, I, I pretty much, I advertise it here mostly as a way to have a more positive and human interaction. You listen to the person, then you tell them what you're about, you know, by sharing something about yourself, uh, the true story of how you came to a position or, or a true story of why, why a position matters deeply to you. But it also has been shown to be a persuasive approach. So research on deep canvassing shows that perspective sharing is maybe the most vital element of this most effective approach to door-to-door -door persuasion. So I should tell you what deep canvassing is. So this, this is a technique of door-to-door, -door, you know, conversations around political issues that canvassers, many, many canvassers use that involves asking somebody about where they're coming from on an issue and then relating to them a story that might be your own story, like the canvasser's own experience, or it could be the experience of somebody the canvasser knows or knows of, a story which then explains their position on an issue. So for example, if a door-to-door canvasser is canvassing to promote a policy at the state level to protect the rights of trans people in the workplace, you know, protect them from workplace discrimination, let's say, then they might tell the story of a friend of theirs who was trans, who was fired from their job or needed some sort of protections that they didn't get uh, or feared for their safety or something like that. And by offering that perspective, somebody on the other side who maybe has never met a trans person before, you know, or at least that they know of, and can't really relate to this position, and maybe had a very different view on this policy issue, will say, oh, okay, I'm starting to relate to this. Like I now see the human aspect of this policy. And all these policies are built on, you know, on human experience at some level, but we don't necessarily have access to it. We haven't heard the story of someone who would be helped by a policy. And so that's why this is considered a really effective canvassing technique, is because it, it brings the humanity to a policy. Uh, position doesn't necessarily convince somebody, but it tends to be uh, more effective than than really just about any other persuasive approach that's out there. Uh, it's interestingly deep canvassing, which involves active listening and perspective sharing, has also been shown to improve the attitudes of the canvassers themselves towards their rival partisans. And so, by having the experience of listening non-judgmentally by uh, to people that they disagree with offering their own perspective and then finding that perspective is welcomed warmly, usually uh, by the person they're talking to, people tend to have a better, uh, more positive attitude towards the people they're talking with. So it's not just like some cynical technique for persuading people to agree with you that canvassers use to try to score votes or something. It's actually like a nice technique that leads to uh, increased mutual respect on both sides. And then I mentioned moral reframing, which I wanna to talk to you about in a little more depth now. So here we're moving into a little bit more, what's a way to talk about political issues that would be persuasive, that might lead somebody to agree with you 
on an issue that you care a lot about that you'd like them to agree with you on, um, or at least come your way a little bit on. So this technique involves connecting your views with the values of the person you're talking to. Now that might seem incredibly obvious, like how else would you, what else would you do in such an, in a political interaction where you're trying to persuade somebody? But interestingly, it's not really the default way that people approach political conversations or political persuasion opportunities. Usually people go to articulate their own reasons for their positions, the ways in which their views are rooted in their own values. So what does this involve? This means if you're talking with a conservative, try to think about a way to connect the view you're advocating for to values like patriotism, the family, religion, valued traditions in the community, regional identities, like try to connect to something that a conservative would uniquely care about. Likewise, if you're trying to persuade a liberal, try to think about how your position might be related to equality, social justice, the protection of vulnerable groups or groups that have been traditionally disadvantaged in society, that's the sort of thing that would resonate with a liberal or resonate more with a liberal or a progressive. And again, this is a technique that's been studied most of all as a, as a means for persuasion, but it's also been studied as a way, uh, or well, we I, I think it also conveys respect. We haven't actually studied this as much, but my own feeling is that uh, if used correctly, it conveys respect. Why? Well, because you're taking the time to try to figure out what the person you're talking with, what they really care most about. Because your moral values, I mean, these are your most like deeply held beliefs, right? And if you approach somebody and you say, I want you to agree with me on issue X, which you don't agree with me on now, and I want you to agree for my reasons, you know, the reason that's rooted in my values, but th those values don't necessarily resonate with them, then you're asking them to move and on something that they don't particularly want to move on and change really who they are, right? Because people's moral values are really definitional to who they are. So if you can instead take the time to figure out where's this person probably coming from, you know, like what, what do they value most? What are their moral values? And then is there a connection between the thing I'm trying to talk about and what they care most about? Is there a reason they could agree with me while still being who they are? And this involves tolerating finding agreement for different reasons, but I think that's gotta be okay in a society that's as diverse as the United States is. So how could we know what somebody's values are? Well, obviously you can ask them, that's a good approach. And <laughs> you also can know a little bit about it from knowing their political background. Because one of the most robust associations that we see in the political and moral psychology literature is this tendency for liberals and conservatives to endorse different moral values to different degrees. So here I'm gonna talk a little bit about moral foundations theory, which is a theory of politics and morality associated with, uh, or that was invented by Jonathan Haidt and Jesse Graham. And what they find is that liberals tend to report greater levels of concern about equality and, just, and social justice and care and protection. They bring those kinds of concerns more to their moral reasoning about issues than conservatives do. Not that conservatives don't consider these things, they do but they, liberals consider them a lot. Conservatives, meanwhile, think about moral considerations that liberals don't think about very much, like group loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, religious purity and sanctity, purity and religious sanctity. That one is one of the most polarized of all the moral values uh, in this theory. 
purity and sanctity, which liberals really don't tend to use very much, but conservatives use to some extent. And you can see right away that these categories of moral values may look familiar. And you can also see right away how we're in trouble because of our political divide sits on top of a deeper moral divide in terms of our most deeply held beliefs, then it's gonna to be tough for us to be able to find consensus on issues. Uh, and in fact, we're gonna to have to be really smart about finding ways to broker agreement across moral differences, uh, which is something that people are do not naturally do. In fact, there's something called moral empathy gaps, which uh, we've talked about in research from my lab, which is basically the tendency for when you're in a moral worldview to connect very strongly with other people that share that worldview, but to really struggle to understand and attend to other moral worldviews. Because people, when they have moral values, they really think they're the right ones. You know, they understand other people have different ones, but they think that theirs are the right ones and that the other people ought to change to agree with them. There's a sort of factuality to moral values. You think they're, they're true and right and you judge people for violating them. So if we know this, if we know something about liberals and conservatives most deeply held values, that means we should be able to make more persuasive appeals in light of this knowledge, right? And that's what we've been studying in my lab among, among other things for, for many years. So I'll give you one example, or I'll give you a few examples here. So many years ago, we conducted a study before same-sex marriage was the law of the land in the United States, where, but when it was a highly divisive political issue. And what we were interested in is whether a, a, a statement that advocated for same-sex marriage, in terms of conservative, these more conservative moral values might be more persuasive to conservatives than one that was uh, in terms of more liberal moral values. So we recruited a sample of participants on the internet to do an online poll and before they did the poll on their views on gay rights and same-sex marriage, we randomly assigned them to either to read one of two persuasive appeals. One of them had typical arguments in favor of same-sex marriage, ones that you're probably familiar with that invoke values like equality and justice. So here are some excerpts from that essay. It said things like, gay couples deserve the right to get married. The law requires that all citizens be treated equally and have the same opportunity to pursue happiness. Legalizing same-sex marriage is the only fair course of action in a country founded on the principle of equality. So we compared the effect of this essay to a very different essay that made a sort of patriotism and group loyalty argument in support of same-sex marriage. It said things like same-sex couples are proud and patriotic Americans. They share the same basic hopes and desires as all Americans. Like other proud Americans, gay couples peacefully build lives together, buy homes, and contribute to the American economy and society. And so here, we're trying to embed same-sex marriage in a more conservative moral worldview and, and show how that could make sense. And the results were consistent with our predictions. So we found moderates and liberals not particularly affected by this, uh, by which you know, message they saw, but uh, conservatives were significantly affected by it. They reported greater support for same-sex marriage if they had heard this patriotism and loyalty argument than if they had heard the equality argument. So, we sort of, we were like, okay, this is some good initial evidence for this, but let's see if it's robust. And we did lots of studies. So well, I guess I already said the same-sex marriage study. We did arguments. We, we tested arguments for national health insurance in terms of religious uh, purity and sanctity. We also tested arguments in support of environmental protection in terms of the value of purity. In each of these cases, we found 
that these reframed arguments were more effective in persuading conservatives. And we've tested the other way of, as well, of course, where we've made arguments that were designed to fit with liberals' moral worldviews on issues like having high levels of military spending or making English the official language of the United States, made arguments for those in terms of equality rather than group loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, these more traditional arguments. The, the argument for military spending in particular was really interesting. Uh, there, we made an argument that the military is an institution that plays a critical role in upward social mobility for people from poor, disadvantaged working class backgrounds and working class backgrounds, offering them an opportunity to, to save money, uh, to go to college or start a small business. We also talked about how the military was one of the first major institutions in the US to racially integrate and that it is still a place where people can achieve on a more or less level playing field where they're judged based on their actions, not their social background. And you know, you hear that sort of an argument. If you're a liberal, you start to say, oh, wow, okay, there are aspects of the military that really appeal to my values. You know, Supporting high levels of spending for the military makes more sense to me now. So one thing that people often say, as I think I alluded to before, is that this, is, this seems very, very obvious. Obviously, if you're going to make a persuasive appeal, you ought to be thinking about what does this person care about? In the same way that if you were going to sell a car to somebody, you would talk to them about the value of the car. You wouldn't talk to them about how excited you were about getting their money and all the cool things you're going to spend it on. You know, like it seems very obvious that a persuasive appeal is going to go better if you get out of your own head than into somebody else's head. Uh, but having said that, you know, it's it's you know, it's not necessarily what we do. It is an idea that has deep roots though in Western philosophy. For example, I stumbled across this quote from Blaise Pascal uh, in Penses in the 17th century. So almost a half a millennia ago, half a millennium ago, he said, it is necessary to have regard for the person whom we wish to persuade, what principles he acknowledges and then observe in the thing in question, what affinity it has with the acknowledged principles, which is just a much more elegant and fancy way to say what I've taken like 15 minutes to say here. And I have to say, this is definitely the plight of the social scientist. You think you have a new idea, and then it turns out that a French guy with terrific hair had that idea himself hundreds of years ago. So while the idea is not that hard to get in general, it is not something we do on autopilot. This is how people tend to persuade. We recruited a bunch of liberals and conservatives to make persuasive appeals, and we even incentivized this. We said, hey, we're going to send your persuasive appeals, whatever the essays you write, we're going to send them to a, somebody on the other side of this ideological divide and will pay you if you're successful in persuading them. And despite that, we found that liberals tended to make arguments in terms of liberal values, these more liberal values, conservatives made arguments in terms of these more conservative values. And so people, you know, even when they're incentivized to persuade, they're on a certain kind of moral and political autopilot. They make the arguments that make sense to them. So let me recap the techniques. So number one, as I've been talking about here, moral reframing, this is something we don't do naturally, but we can do it, you know, if we think really carefully about what the person we're communicating with values most and try to find a connection between the issue at hand and those deeply held values, active listening, like really taking the time to hear where somebody's coming from, and then perspective sharing, offering your own perspective on the issue, ideally embedded in a narrative or a story of how you came to it, or a narrative or a story that illustrates the perspective of somebody who would really benefit from the policy or, or who is really hurt by some issue that, that's the one you're talking about. 
As I wrap up here, I, I wanted to say thanks to the members of my lab. Everything that we do is a team effort. And so I'll be, I'm the one talking here, but I'm talking about research that was contributed to by you know, dozens and dozens of people. It was actually just a subset of all the folks that I, I should be thanking. And I wanted to also specifically highlight this guy, Matt Feinberg, who's uh, an old friend. He was the best man at my wedding and I was the best man at his. And he and I, he was, he was my student back at UC Berkeley uh, when I was a professor there. And he is, you know, really one of the critical people that came up with this idea of moral reframing. And, you know, I think that uh, Matt and I had really similar experiences coming of age in states where we were, I mean, we were frankly, we were both liberal growing up in like red or, you know, red states at the time. He grew up in Nevada uh, in the 90s and I grew up in, in South Carolina and Kansas in the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, we would, when we would try to make these persuasive appeals that reflected this technique of moral reframing, we would reflect back on all of these political debates and conversations that we had had in high school and junior high that were really ineffective and, and went nowhere where we, uh, we really did not, you know, know to do this technique. And we would go back to them and sort of think what, you know, what could we have done differently? And how could we have approached these interactions differently with these people, you know, that we really liked, you know, that just had different political stripes from us, owing in part to their cultural background. And the thing that we kept saying to ourselves as we would try to construct these persuasive appeals uh, was empathy and respect, empathy and respect. It was like a mantra in, in our lab at the time. We would just say it over and over. And if you can tap into those two things, then you can connect with somebody and you might even be able to persuade somebody in this country. And when you say it that way, you know, it sounds good, but if we're gonna start to show empathy and respect across political lines, um, we're all gonna have to take part in this. Uh, the responsibility is gonna start with us. And I think that we should do it, even though it's very difficult and it doesn't feel easy and it feels wrong sometimes. Uh, but I think we should do it because all the hate and the contempt that we are showing one another in this country uh, that flows through us, it, it makes us ugly and it corrupts us. And I think it, it really it threatens the fabric of our society. And we have to try to find a way to rise above it and defeat it because uh, it's, it's a terrible force. I, I, I believe that we owe it to one another uh, to tap into empathy and respect and try to connect uh, because I don't think we can afford to hate the people on the other side, whatever the other side is for you. I don't think we can afford to hate them anymore. And I don't think we can afford to let them hate us either. So empathy and respect, that's what I'll leave you with. And if you think about it, I think it's the very least that we owe our fellow citizens. So thank you so much for your time and attention and look forward to answering questions and furthering our conversation. And I'll welcome Kristen back. Kristen from Civic Health Project. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much. That was a really inspiring and, and powerful note on which to wind up your formal comments before we go into the Q&A part of the program tonight. Thanks. And I'm gonna take us right into Q&A uh, with a question that was posed ahead of time by one of our audience members tonight, but I think it's probably on a lot of people's minds and it's often on mine. You know, you've given us some great tools, active listening, perspective sharing, and especially moral reframing. So that's great, you know, we've got some, some more tools in our toolkit, but I probably speak on behalf of a lot of people who are attending when I say this is still really hard. It's like emotionally hard, it's physiologically hard. And I'm, I'm struck by, you know, a conversation I had just a couple of days ago with 
a friend and colleague who I know also has very different political opinions from mine. And when a certain topic came up in our conversation, even though we're friends, I could feel my heart starting to race. My palms got a little bit sweaty. I mean, this still feels scary and a little unappealing to a lot of us. So I was wondering if you could, let's just get the objections out on the table here. Why is this so hard? Why don't we want to do it? What's going on? Can you take us into the psychology? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first, I just totally validate your experience, which is exactly mine as well. And I think uh, thinking about the research, trying to be introspective, I I think it's that I anyway, am a pretty high agreeableness person. I'm much more comfortable agreeing with folks than disagreeing with them. I guess I'm conflict avoidant. You know, I'd rather not uh, get into conflicts. Most people are conflict avoidant. People don't, (laughs) don't desire conflicts in their everyday life. And people are really uh, loss averse, you know, people really don't like it when things go badly, when they, when they lose something positive, people are very sensitive, negative affect, negative emotions more so than they are drawn to positive emotions, just this psychological, you know, fixation on negative things that we, we tend to have. And so there is a tendency for us to worry, I think, excessively about, uh, a political conversation going bad. I'm not invalidating people who are having those experiences that really are going bad and hope that we can offer some tools here to navigate those difficult interactions that you have to have maybe in your family or your neighborhood or something. But uh, it is the case in research that people overestimate how badly cross-partisan interactions will go. There's a recent study by my uh, a graduate student in my lab, Eric Santoro uh, and David Brockman at UC Berkeley, where they found that people uh, having cross-partisan interactions tended to have uh, good experiences and also improved their feelings towards you know, rival partisans just in general, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from just having a single conversation with, with one person from the other party, but that they had anticipated them only going so-so. And so people really were way off on average in their predictions of how good cross-partisan interactions uh, would feel to them. And I think knowing that is helpful of like, it's on average, going to go better than you expect. At least that's helpful to me. It sounds like we can train ourselves to go into these interactions with a little bit more courage and confidence that they won't produce those negative outcomes that we fear, almost like cognitive behavioral therapy or some mindfulness that we can apply as we go into those situations. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, totally agree. And these are, you know, mostly not trained folks that don't have any kind of techniques like the ones we've been talking about here to improve those conversations. So you could really be optimistic if you were using some of these tools here, like active listening and perspective sharing. Yeah. Well, I want to jump to a question that came in on the live Q&A, which is um, maybe the way that I would frame this question is, what, what do we do in situations where we find that maybe we're the ones taking the first step in terms of bridge building, but what we're encountering is, you know, family and friends who are using offensive ways of phrasing things, insulting remarks, name calling. We might go into an interaction prepared and ready for a bridge building type of encounter, yet that's not what we uh, encounter from our from our conversation partner or the person we're interacting with. Yeah. How do we how do we stay the course in those situations? Well, I think I don't think the techniques can fix everything. You know, and I think some people have toxic personalities in general or toxic uh approaches to politics that are, are not something you can strategically get around and I don't think you owe it to the country, you know, to endure abusive interactions or dehumanizing interactions. You know, I, I don't think that that's the case. So I think it is okay 
to draw lines. I think it's important to draw lines and say, you know, like this is this is too toxic that I won't let myself be treated this way. Uh, and it's so I think it's important to reach out and it's important to try to build bridges, but it's also important to have lines and and stick to them with like standards of you know conduct that you you think you're you're deserving of because because you are conduct and and self-care. We all have our limits, right? Yeah, and for um, some people, there's so much on the line, you know, like they have an identity membership that is politicized. And, you know, for them, these conversations, they're felt so much more deeply. Uh, and it's it's just much more difficult. And I think, especially if one has a political position about an identity that the person that you're talking to has, like, it's important to really try to be respectful because it has huge stakes for that person. Yeah, it's really interesting, Rob. I... I take on board what you say about how it may be challenging and there may be limits in that interaction. And at the same time, I know that I personally have tried to cultivate a mindset of generosity or giving grace in encountering those less bridging or more toxic types of behaviors, even if I'm feeling a little threatened or my own identity coming under attack. Because I I think I have come to recognize that all of us maybe are <laughs> or at least those of us who are on this uh, event tonight are are trying to learn how to come out of a defensive crouch, a protective position, but that that can take some time. We can all be a little clumsy in doing it. And so even while protecting ourselves as we need to in those interactions, if we can recognize that, maybe don't give up on people the first time around, but just try to muster the courage or strength to come back a second or a third time, continue to outreach, model the interaction and see if if that toxicity can be softened over time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that also mirrors my experience that a lot of, you know, difficult political conversations I've had, they started with arguments where people, you know, like, because you're not going to be at your best all the time and people move, you know, back and forth really quick and you're in, you're in a fight before you know it. And then you effortfully put it back together and try to cool it down and you maybe get to a better place because you were really real with the person at the beginning. You now have a a pretty raw, common emotional experience. And uh, if you can put it back together, it can it can go to a really good place. Yeah, thanks. Well, like I said, I, I wanted to get all the kind of fears, risks, and objections out on the table early. And there's another one that maybe isn't as immediately obvious, but somebody asked it in the Q&A, and I, this is another challenge that I, I know I've personally reflected on a lot. And sometimes I refer to it as the Bridger's Dilemma. And what it is, is the idea that we're so strongly affiliated with our own political tribes and our own political identities that reaching out across the aisle or across to our political others mm -hmm. can feel risky because it seems like we're violating the norms or the sanctity of our own tribe. And we may even be called out for that, that in extending an olive branch to political outpartisans, we are in some way offending those who who we would consider to be in our tribe. So do you have any thoughts about that? How to address or mitigate uh, what, I've, what I've affectionately referred to as the Bridger's dilemma, mm -hmm. getting ousted from your own tribe? <laughs> yeah, well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Like one, one thing that we observe in research is that people are not as much political purists as you, as you might think. Um, people tend to overestimate, even in their own group, how extreme views are on average and how averse people are to, to reaching out across political lines, uh, that people tend to overestimate how much blowback 
might await them, you know, from their own in-group. You know, people understand that there, there are out-group members out there and that you need to try to connect with them and that you, the that your political side will will thrive actually with some positive interactions. So anyway, there's research showing people kind of overestimate how purist uh, people are on their own side, maybe in part because social yeah. media makes a few examples really prominent, you know, and you can probably think in your own social network of a couple of folks who maybe would, you have a good reason to think they would be judgmental of you showing some tolerance for someone on the other side, but that is definitely not the generally held view on either side. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say is we've done this research recently showing that if you talk to people, if you give people an essay that highlights how perspective taking, taking the perspective of somebody on the other side can be effective for advancing your own side. It can help you have better interactions. It can help you be more persuasive. Uh, then people tend to do more perspective taking and they are more persuasive and they reach out in a way that's more empathetic. And so I think what I would like to see is for us to just kind of have a, a greater sense of that, that like taking the perspective of somebody on the other side is not betraying your group. It actually helps your group. And it's obviously, a, you know, a respectful way to engage with somebody on the other side. Right. That's great. And a lot of what you said, I, I will say, um, has been validated by my experiences. I personally made a shift from leading more with my partisan identity and values to deciding I was going to lead more with bridging, you know, lead with curiosity and, and inquiry. And generally, the feedback's been pretty good. And when it's when it's not good, there are a couple approaches that have worked pretty well for me. One is more of a statement and one is more of a question. And the statement that I might make to, to folks is, you know, America definitely needs fighters. It needs people with strong opinions and, and values and things they're willing to go to the mat for. And America needs bridgers too. You know, mm -hmm. people who will hold the social fabric and the relationships and the communities of our country together. And so I think it's the blend of the fighters and the bridgers that, that puts us at our strongest. So you know, there might be uh, people on the call with us today who are more naturally inclined to be in the fight and fight for what they believe in and others who are more inclined to bridge. So just kind of recognizing where you are on that spectrum and, and where you'd like to land. I think that is a useful thing to reflect on. Oh, and I said, sometimes I might respond with a question when I'm challenged on bridging, which is simply this, you know, if we don't bridge, if we don't try to bridge across our extreme differences, what is the alternative? Yeah, yeah. And that can leave people thinking and scratching their heads. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to widen the conversation a bit further, Rob. We've been talking mm -hmm. a lot about bridging differences, using some of these techniques like perspective sharing and moral reframing. But in your work and in your research, you are not only concerned with these questions of why we feel animosity toward one another, what causes us to feel inclined or not inclined to try to bridge these differences, you also look kind of more broadly at the state and health of our democracy mm -hmm. and what might drive people to feel either more pro-democratic, let's say, or more anti-democratic in their inclinations. And there's this question that I know I have in my mind about how our differences becoming more extreme might intersect with the increasing fragility that many of us might be feeling about the health and strength of our democracy. So I'm gonna ask you to yeah. explore those interrelated themes a little bit. How does your research inform and, and help us think about these questions of animosity and attitudes towards democracy? Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I think, first of all, you know, there's uh, one of the biggest reasons that people, I think, should care about polarization is to reflect on how polarization can undermine the stability of democracy. Uh, this is not necessarily obvious at first until you reflect on it, but the, probably the biggest reason why democratic backsliding can thrive in polarized environments where there's a high level of uh, intergroup political conflict is because uh, people stop serving as an effective check on anti-democratic moves that their leaders uh, may make. So when you are considering in your mind that uh, it's completely off limits to vote for the other party because you you hate them and revile them uh, and see them as responsible for all sorts of terrible things. Once that's off limits, that means your in-party leaders can really do anything. <laughs> and, uh, and you're unlikely to do much of anything except maybe stay home. But what we tend to see is in a highly polarized environment, people construe that as helping the other side. And so uh, one of the best predictors of people being willing to tolerate anti-democratic moves from their leaders, such as not acknowledging the results of an election that their side lost or removing polling places from areas that would benefit the other party um, or uh, gerrymandering, these partisan gerrymandering that would benefit your party uh, at the expense of the other party. One of the reasons people will mm -hmm. tolerate those things when they come from their own leaders is because they're thinking, well, it's completely off limits to, to switch sides here. And if I stay home, I'm only helping the other side win. And that's bad. This, this small thing I don't like, but I really don't want us to lose. Uh, so that's that's why polarization can destabilize democracy. I mean, among other reasons. And, and that's why we also study democratic stability, you know, in our work on polarization. Yeah. And, you know, you're talking about how our our concerns can drive us to become more tolerant of anti-democratic behavior in our own political party, our own um, in partisans, because we begin to review, <laughs> sorry, but regard the out partisans as an increasing destabilizing threat. The So not only does this dynamic seem to cause us to tolerate or embrace anti-democratic behaviors by fellow citizens or politicians, but also worryingly political violence. And you alluded to this in your talk, uh, the basic question asked to us is, is political violence increasing? Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe you could comment on what you see as the trends in terms of political mm -hmm. violence here in the U.S. and how that too relates to the the dynamic of affective polarization or partisan animosity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much to say here. It's, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, support for political violence. Okay, so political violence itself, I it depends how you look at the data and ca categorize things as political mm -hmm. or not. But my read on that is that political violence is increasing. We're a little bit unclear on whether support for political violence is increasing. We know that it polls as being at, I think, to what are to me alarming levels, you know, as I said earlier. Interestingly, people greatly overestimate how much support for political violence there is, especially among people in the rival partisan group. So we have a recent study where we found that people overestimate how much their rival partisans support political violence on the order of like three, four hundred percent. So just massively inaccurate estimates. So people think that the other side is full of people that are willing to report that they're at 50 on a hundred point scale in terms of you know, their levels of support for political violence when they're actually at 10 or something like that. Uh, so hugely, you know, massive misperceptions on this. And what I worry a lot about is that those misperceptions can become self-fulfilling because you have these inaccurate partisan stereotypes. You then think you have to reciprocate that sentiment. 
And consistent with that, we find that if we correct people's misperceptions, they then ratchet down their own support for partisan violence, like 40, 50%. And that you can give people even just a few statistics on a single screen in a survey, come back a month later, and they still will report lower support for partisan violence. It's such a strong effect. And what I take from that is that what levels we do observe, while they're not as high as people think they are, they're concerning. And a good chunk of that is reciprocating a misperception. Uh, that the other side is just seething, dying to be violent. But, you know, it only takes a few people to make political violence a huge societal issue. You know, it doesn't have to be something that the majority of folks uh, support. But I do think it gets easier to police political violence in a society if you can realize, if you can coalesce around, uh, you know, anti-violent norms that are supported by the vast majority of the populace. That can only help, you know. Uh, and we sort of have that hidden majority. We just don't fully appreciate that we have it. Yeah, well, you're definitely laying out the stakes here, Rob. And, you know, what I'm taking away from what you're saying and others, too, I'm sure, is that, you know, I think I safely speak for most or all people attending, hopefully, that we don't have folks who are inclined to commit political violence, who would also not say that they support political violence. But it, it seems like there's just enough indication that there's interplay between these dynamics of partisan animosity, support for anti-democratic attitudes, support for um, or tolerance, at least for political violence, that the, the lever we maybe can all push, it, it brings us back to partisan animosity and really chipping away, chipping away at those anxieties, chipping away at those misperceptions that lead us to believe wrongly these extreme notions about our political rivals. I'll, I'll borrow the term that you used earlier. And, and when I think about it that way, it feels very empowering uh, because that is the piece of the puzzle we can all work on. It doesn't matter, again, if we're young or old, red or blue, we can be sitting on different sides of just about any societal fault line and start to unwind these unhealthy dynamics. That's all stuff we can do as individuals. And mm -hmm. sometimes I refer to that as the demand side, like we're the consumers and 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 the actors in the society, and we decide, you know, what kind of behavior we want to cultivate and and expect of ourselves and others. But there's a great question that came in, which uh, refers to what I think of as the supply side of this terrible, you know, set of toxic, divisive dynamics in our country. And the question, I'll just kind of read it verbatim. Part of the problem is that some see division and polarization. Oh, division and provocation as a goal, not a problem. Any thoughts on dealing with this underlying disconnection? Or as I know, Liz would be inclined to say it, you know, how do we cope with the, the conflict entrepreneurs? Oh, <laughs> Division yes. is the goal. Well, yeah. So in terms of folks you might encounter in your everyday life, there certainly are folks like this. Fortunately, they are less common than we assume they are. So in general, our partisan stereotypes uh, tend to be exaggerated when we're thinking about our rivals. And, you know, this has been shown across the political violence support, you know, uh, anti-democratic attitudes, lots of different topics. People tend to overestimate how much just uh, rival party voters walking around in, in everyday life, how much they uh, are actually have these toxic attitudes. That said, it is absolutely the case that there are these that there's conflict provocateurs in the mass media, in partisan media, on social media, because, you know, it, it it's beneficial. It gets clicks. You know, people run towards the conflict. They run towards the intergroup conflict. They 
run towards the negative portrayals of this group that they then increasingly hate and dislike and view in flatter, less nuanced ways as they uh, read more and more of this content. And, you know, for some people that leads down this like extremist, radicalizing internet uh, wormhole. For most of us, it just leads us into politically homogenous uh, media consumption patterns and social media spaces and social networks where we develop a really, you know, nuanced, affirming view of our, you know, of our own party uh, with almost no examples of humanizing people, uh, you know, like real human people that are sympathetic to, uh, from our perspective from the other party. And it's an unfortunate thing about the structure of media, and it's not really clear how to intervene on it. One thing that we did recently was we tested a whole bunch of ideas for how to strengthen Americans' democratic attitudes and reduce their uh, toxic, what, what toxic polarized attitudes exist. Uh, we put out a call to really anybody who could submit an idea that we could test in the context of an online survey experiment. And this was, you know, you know about this, Kristen, because you all at Civic Health Project helped us develop this and, and helped to fund it as well. And we got this huge number of submissions for ideas for how to turn the temperature down, improve Americans' democratic attitudes, uh, submissions from 250 different submitting teams from 17 different countries. We're talking about academics from every conceivable discipline, activists, people from the bridging community, bunch of really great ideas. And we tested 25 of them in a massive experiment. And we came coming out of that, we got a much better sense uh, than we ever had before of what are the levers to, to push to improve people's democratic attitudes and, and turn the heat down? And when it comes to partisan animosity, affective polarization, uh, you know, dislike of rival partisans, the two biggest things that stuck out were uh, interventions that we tested that presented people with sympathetic exemplars from the other side, sympathetic people from the other side that were relatable. That was effective. Also interventions that somehow invoked a common cross-cutting identity, like we're all Americans, for example. That tended to be effective. These were among the, the things, and also the correcting misperceptions of the views of people on the other side. These three strategies really stuck out. When it came to democratic attitudes, those, those things were helpful, but also helpful was to see elites, leaders from, uh, from both parties, supporting uh, turning the heat down on polarization and supporting our democratic processes. So there's a real space for leadership here if people can fill it. Um, the incentives don't always cut that way with the way congressional districts get, get drawn and the incentives to Congress people to get them drawn that way. But when leaders step up and support the rules of the game and civil relations across uh, party lines, it can, it can really make a difference. And Rob, of course, what you're talking about are some of the findings of the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. And there may be folks on the uh, on the line tonight who'd like to explore and learn more about those findings and how they can be applied more broadly to start to, perhaps we can't eliminate the antisocial, the divisive content that's out there, but we can begin to bring in more of the pro-social side of the equation and offer these interventions, these experiences to people, whether in online virtual environments or out in real life, that provoke a different outcome, an outcome that has the effect of driving social cohesion rather than more division. So I know I'm personally really excited about those findings. And folks who want to learn more about it, you can check out Rob had an editorial 
in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago. There was also an article in Fast Company talking about this study. And of course, before we go tonight, we'll provide a link to a conference that's coming up. Rob and I will both be there. Now, you know, we were talking about that adverse content that's out there that's that's driven by conflict entrepreneurs and there's underlying economics below that, right? Because the aim is to get eyeballs, clicks, likes, votes, donations. You know, when we start to, I know that I personally get really upset when I think about this, because I've come to a point where I understand economics are driving a lot of this, but the consequences in our personal real lives can be so damaging. And even if those conflict entrepreneurs are just focused on getting the votes or the eyeballs they need, what they're really doing is destroying uh, the healthy, connected relationships that have existed among family members, friends, and colleagues for a long time. So I just want to underscore the criticality of what you're talking about, not only becoming more empowered to understand those drivers and those economics, but also to embrace and seek out and create more of that pro-social, bridging, cohesive content that can serve as an antidote. Now, for this to work, everyone's got to contribute. You've said that yourself uh, two mm-hmm. or three times already on the call, and I, I couldn't agree more. There's a question that came in on the chat. I've heard this question before. I know that a lot of people in the bridge building field grapple with this. And the question is, in fact, it came up during your talk just a couple of days ago at the conference we were at, and that is that it feels like, or it seems like in bridge building forums, there there's a tendency for those to be more heavily populated by liberals than mm-hmm. conservatives. Why is that? What would be the underlying dynamic there? What does it take to drive to a more balanced set of environments where bridge building is taking place if, in fact, that imbalance exists? Do you, do you mm-hmm. have some thoughts about that? I can offer some of my own, but I'd love to hear. I'd be interested in, in yours. You know, there hasn't been systematic research on why this is, though I also we observe that same, you know, I observe that same pattern that these bridge building spaces tend to be liberal dominated. My first, well, not necessarily dominant, but majority liberal, I agree. My first thought on this was that uh, that it was because the Republicans had the presidency, you know, from 2016 to 2020, 2017, 2021, whatever. And it was, you know, it's it, there's more incentives for bridge building when you're out of power, you know? And so uh, if you're in power, you're sort of like, well, I don't, why why do I need to be doing a bunch of bridge building? Like we just we just won the election. We've got, you know, a governing majority. We're going to pass some legislation now and it's going to be great. You know, like, you know, you all should get on board. Uh, so the incentives are not as clear. Whereas for, for liberals, you know, it'd be more like, no, no, let's meet in the middle because, you know, uh, just the political structure of incentives. So that'd be one thing. And then also I think, you know, like small L liberalism, you know, involves an open-mindedness to different perspectives. Now, a lot of conservatives would say that's that's hypocritical, that that's not really, contemporary liberalism is not that liberal. Um, but there definitely is a strain of sort of, you know, of old school liberalism that's, that, you know, is associated with the ACLU, would like to see all voices heard, thinks that the best decisions come when all the, all the viewpoints are put forward and an open free exchange of ideas and debate leads to some people changing minds and and that you know uh, that that's the better way to run a society and uh, and so I think that is still a strain of thought you know among uh, American liberals it's also a strain of thought that's present amongst libertarians and so you see I think among the conservatives in the bridging space I see a lot of libertarians and I think that that's that's part of why it fits ideologically 
you know, I heard a, a great quote or comment just earlier today that uh, it made me chuckle because it was attempting to characterize the dynamic that might exist or that people who are conservative, more conservative in their wiring or moral values might feel when they enter into spaces that are populated or let alone dominated by folks who are more liberal in their thinking. And uh, and she, it, it was uh, Monica Guzman from Braver Angels. Big shout out to Braver Angels for the work they do in the bridging space. And uh, mm-hmm. she was kind of characterizing the uh, the classical liberal or progressive point of view entering into these conversations as I will inform I will inform my political other. And if they don't change their mind, they must be stupid, crazy, or evil. (laughs) Those are kind of the only three options. And if that's the feeling that that one who is conservative has entering into spaces that feel more liberal, certainly that's, uh, that's hardly an invitation to bridge building. And so if to the extent that that accurately characterizes a dynamic that might be out there, it may warrant some reflection. I heard another great quote, uh, same day, and it was, it's not about uh, welcoming people into spaces. It's about creating spaces mm-hmm. where people feel welcomed, mm-hmm. where they truly feel welcomed. And how do you create the conditions for that? And I'll tie that to another question that came in from the audience, which is really just how, where and how do we create spaces, places, and maybe modalities would be a good word to use, modalities where these conversations or interactions across difference can happen and particularly any thoughts on how different modalities might appeal more to conservatives versus liberals. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what the bridging community is all about is about trying to create those fora where people can come together and have conversations across these political lines and come to have some sort of, uh, you know, mutual respect and, and update their views and learn from one another uh, you know, because it has to go both ways, you know, like I emphasize that there are techniques here for persuasion uh, that I talked about in my talk earlier. But I think that, you know, to be authentically trying to persuade somebody to, to do that sincerely, you have to also be open to persuasion yourself and be open to updating your own views. Uh, that's when you're really engaging authentically with other people. But what do you think about uh, the opportunities that exist for this. Yeah. Well, as you say, I don't think you can fake any of that. I mean, I, I personally, and, and you've used this kind of framing as well, Rob, I know about the work is individual. It's interpersonal and in our relationships, and it's also institutional. And another question came in that we may or may not have time to get to around some of the institutional mechanisms that could help um, bridge divides, things like ranked choice voting or open primaries. I'm just going to park that and say that's that's come up if we have a chance to get to it. But um, but that idea of this being a journey that we're all on and the journey, frankly, starts with some individual work and cultivating authentic, authentic curiosity, authentic humility, authentic skills around listening and appreciating and considering other people's perspectives. You know, the end of that journey doesn't have to culminate in sacrificing your own beliefs, sacrificing your own values. It can culminate actually in a really beautiful place, which is that you further appreciate the humanity and can connect to the humanity of others who hold uh, dramatically different political, social views and values from your own. And that can have a really widening effect on all of our lives, our relationships, and also a widening of possibilities, right? Because if we can 
over overcome a lot of the different barriers we've talked about today, the the anxiety, the uh, misperceptions that we hold of one another, the belief that things are going to be worse than they actually are, that the viewpoint held is more extreme than it actually is. If we can just get out of our own way, uh, yeah. we can open pathways to these really beautiful connections that that open possibility. I think right. that's what I'd like to suggest. I'm not saying it's easy. I, I really do describe this more and more as a practice like meditation or yoga, both of which I'm horrible at, by the way, um, <laughs> but really trying to cultivate bridge building as a practice and just looking for seeking out opportunities to try out these skills with people who are willing to do it with you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe just a quick comment or two, Rob, on the institutional part of that, because we've talked a lot about cultivating the individual mindset and the interpersonal skills and interactions, but a word or two on institutions, what do you see there? Well, I think that uh, institutions can do a lot to promote democratic uh, reforms. I mean, this one of the biggest things that would help a lot would be, I think, if we could institute some major structural democratic reforms that would mm -hmm. kind of fundamentally change the way things work, change incentive systems for politicians, proportional representation at the state congressional level is something that I, I think is is really compelling. I think that it's not been good that geography has come to be so associated with uh, with voice in Washington because of the, the Senate, uh, the structure of the Senate, the structure of the Electoral College. I think it's had a, a distorting effect and it would be, I mean, Personally, I would support even radical measures like uh, abolishing the Senate and reforming the Electoral College. But these sorts of major reforms could change the terrain of the game and make what we're getting back from Washington correspond better to what we want. But I think that ranked choice voting and open primaries, which you mentioned earlier, are also really attractive, uh, in part because I think they offer an opportunity for us to reclaim some power and voice from parties, yeah. which I think is really promising. Great. Yeah. So not to pile on everyone, but in addition to all of our recommended further reading and exploration around bridge building, moral reframing, uh, we also really encourage you to delve into all the information that's out there about some of these structural reforms and the potentially positive impact that they could have on shifting both incentives and norms among our political elites and systems and institutions, uh, and, and maybe just one organization or site I'll recommend uh, to do a at least a scratch the surface, look at some of these different policies would be Unite America. So I'd encourage you to check out Unite America. Their slogan is country over party and a great place to start your journey of learning more about some of these structural reforms. So with that, I know Liz would like to make sure that we close on time. So couple of things. First of all, Rob, I want to thank you so much and thank your two kids for being with us this evening for this exploration together of how we have better political conversations and avoid the zombie apocalypse. So thank you for helping us to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a pleasure <laughs> and really an honor to, to talk with all of you. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for showing up. Well, with that, on behalf of Florida Humanities, the Village Square, and Civic Health Project, and all of our streaming partners, thank you. Uh, we'd like to thank all of you for joining us tonight. That's it. Good night, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. I found this program so very useful. I think it totally delivered on the promise of how to have better political conversations. So way to go, Rob, and also Kristen. 
Now, before I let you go, I have just a few quick reflections. First, I was totally going to make a joke about how Rob must be younger than me because he was having political conversations in high school, which was not a thing when I was in high school. But then I Googled him and found out he's exactly my age. So now I'm both happy and sad about that news. So way to go, Rob, for having political conversations in high school. Clearly, this was your calling. All right, next. Who else was surprised when Rob said he was conflict avoidant? This reminds me how easy it is to feel like everyone else has things under control while we ourselves struggle, when in reality, other people struggle too. And learning that most people are conflict avoidant, I think that gives some insight into why we are where we are. Perhaps the extremes who are controlling the narrative are the minority who are more comfortable with conflict. And then you have what we call the silent majority standing by, mostly avoiding conflict. So it was helpful to me to hear that even people like Rob have to push themselves in this area. Okay, now my favorite part of this program is when Rob explained to us why we look past certain things about our own side the things that the other side feels are despicable and should be deal breakers. But for us, they're not deal breakers. So why is that? And he explained it's because switching to the other side is unfathomable. This makes total sense to me. And I think a lot of us can identify with that. And so I think this is actually a lesson and a case for bridge building. There is great value in making our side more palatable to the other side. If we want any chance of expecting people to take a stand when they're at odds with their own side, we have to make them feel like our side is reasonable and has solid values that they could identify with. I think this is an excellent case for bridge building work. So hey, thanks to you for being part of it here with us. All right, that's enough blathering on from me. To stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, please subscribe to our newsletter at villagesquare.us. And while you're there, please consider becoming a member by clicking on that donate link at the top. Our members help us deliver excellent programming to you all year round. And you can join this fabulous group of devoted Americans for just $7 a month or $76 a year. And we also welcome business members for $250 plus. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We are extremely grateful to them for their ongoing support. We appreciate you listening to How to Have Better Political Conversations or Will This Zombie Apocalypse End? Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.